Welcome to the Vita Foods Insights Podcast. Join us as we explore the latest in science and innovation, helping the global health and nutrition industry connect, develop, and progress. Today's host is Charlotte Bastianza, Associate Editor. Hi, and thank you for tuning into this Vita Foods Insights podcast. I'm joined today by James Tonkin, founder and president of Healthy Brand Builders, a company dedicated to brand building management and accelerated solutions. Jim, thanks for joining me today. Oh, it's great to be with you, Charlie. Today, we're talking about the survival of nutrition brands in a post-COVID world with layers of considerations here around the differences between SMEs and big corps. Uh, We're going to look at a bit of funding and investment, absorbing the hard hits and what the future of retail looks like. Jim, you obviously work really closely with a variety of CPG brands, so I think you'll have a really good understanding of how COVID has impacted businesses in the health and nutrition space. Through recent surveys and retail data that we've seen globally, I think we've seen a rise in consumer interest associated with certain health categories, especially those connected with immunity and overall well-being. Certain manufacturers have also reported sales spikes um, in particular ingredients, leading to all kinds of supply chain diversification challenges. But I think while some brands are benefiting from the shifting behavior that we're seeing, some may not always be in the in the same position. So Jim, what are you seeing in terms of brand survival at the moment? Who are the big winners right now? And what type of companies are on the other side of the spectrum quite challenged in today's COVID and economic climate? Well, Charlie, as we talked uh, prior to beginning the recording today, uh, you're clearly aware that this is an incredibly challenging time, no matter if you're a a large CPG or a a pre-revenue startup. Um, COVID has been a a devastating disease. We haven't had a pandemic like this since 1918. Um, And therefore, we were really unprepared um, in most ways to deal with it. And I'm not talking just about the Americas, but I'm talking about globally. Um, As the organizations from the WHO uh, to the the domestic ones in the U.S., the CDC, uh, National Institutes of Health and others, the conflicting data that has been coming out since COVID uh, crippled most of our entities um, has been really difficult for brands and companies alike to navigate. And so in your opening comments, you were talking about companies that have benefited from um, the the tremendous rise around the nutrition space from uh, herbs and spices and botanical uh, mm-hmm. growth to the world of immunity. And yes, that's totally true. I think the numbers approximate 60 billion now in that space, which is a big number. And uh, many companies uh, globally that have ingredients that are focused on that space are running like crazy to develop uh, capsules and tablets and, and beverages and shots and all sorts of other things to be able to fill the void that consumers uh, uh, have f- for uh, being in better condition and surviving uh, this uh, shutdown. So um, f- as it relates to the winners and losers, um, I'm not sure that any companies would be in the winner column as we would traditionally look at winners. I will tell you that there's a number of areas that I think are are winning, if you will, as a strategy which um, have helped companies pivot 
from their traditional vertical retail orientation or their direct to consumer uh, orientation in previous days pre COVID. So what I'm referring to uh, generally is is the online activity, whether it's through Amazon or Alibaba or um, Walmart or Jet or any of these other platforms. And now Jet.com has actually ceased to exist as well. Um, but that that uh, direct to consumer orientation or consumer activated business model um, is growing leaps and bounds. And right. I may have told you before, Charlie, that I'm I'm involved in a uh, as a partner in a Amazon agency, and we've seen explosive growth. Um, actually, starting uh, at the end of uh, Q4 last year, pre-COVID, or at least with the the uh, knowledge that COVID was out there, but certainly not that it was going to be a pandemic. Um, and then, obviously, through January and February, our business has been off the rails, and therefore our clients um, uh, have almost, to a, a, a single company, uh, benefited greatly from uh, enhanced focus, uh, a turn away from retail activity, because here in the US, not dissimilar to where, where you are in London, I'm sure, um, retailers didn't know how to respond to the uh, to the COVID virus. Um, you know, many of them closed their doors for a period of time. Um, and then when they reopened, they were very, uh, you know, tentative in terms of uh, whether people were going to come back and shop because they didn't know what to wear or not wear. And uh, a lot of the, the, the staff in the retail uh, um, stores were, were unsure of how they should be reacting and everything from the supply chain coming in the back door through the register activity at the front end of the store. Um, it was all disrupted. And the supply chain particularly, which I know you're very familiar with, um, was uh, obliterated in many instances. Uh, as you're well aware, a lot of product uh, was being produced and, and shipped out of China, uh, which, which went in every direction uh, from the Far East. Um, and that supply chain was greatly disrupted uh, during China's internal uh, focus on COVID. And then as they came out the other end, they began to patchwork the supply chain uh, back together again, but clearly the disruptions, the cost associated with disruption, the lack of merchandise on store shelves, the amazing uh, reaction by consumers around the globe to stock up and purchase things that were probably, uh, you know, from the, a, a mental acuity perspective, not things that should have been on the high end of the spectrum, uh, toilet right. paper, paper towels and yeah. and things like that. But it, the hoarding mentality that ensued um, more than likely came, and I'm, I'm suggesting this in the U.S. particularly, from things that were natural disaster oriented, like, you know, we, we have uh, er, uh, earthquakes here in the U.S. Sometimes we have lots of um, weather events as it relates to tornadoes and, um, and not cyclones, but, uh, um, you know, large weather uh, events um, here, uh, storms, tropical storms, et cetera, that, that wreak havoc along the coastlines in the southern part of the U.S. and the East Coast particularly. And people usually respond by stocking up on water and paper goods and canned goods and stuff like that. And that's exactly what consumers did. So now you find pantries uh, full of 
this stuff uh, around the country, and it, it's finally slowed the onslaught of of people getting crazy uh, going out and buying these things. Um, it was a huge boon to the paper producers around the country to the extent that they couldn't keep up with the demand, uh, but now we're kind of back in stock again. So getting things right and coming back to this confluence of normalcy, um, I still think is a ways off. Um, many people are still sequestered in their homes in the US. Uh, I talked to friends of mine, uh, you know, in your neck of the woods in, in Western Europe and uh, uh, down in Italy and, and Israel, uh, uh, Fiji, South uh, Africa, uh, Australia regularly, New Zealand. Um, even though COVID uh, in many of those areas is not a big deal, that they're they don't have any deaths recorded on a day to day to day basis any longer. Uh, you know, talking about Australia, New Zealand as an example, they still are not quote unquote back to normal. And I think that's something that we're all going to have to get used to, Charlie, as we continue uh, along this uh, nursing process to get back to some level of health and and uh, stability. Yeah, I, I echo what you say, Jim. I think no country is sort of immune to some of the shifts that are happening at the moment, no matter what their death rate is necessarily. As you mentioned, there's no business in the world right now that isn't being impacted in some way, shape or form. And I think not only um, is interest in certain products changing, but you know, as you've highlighted, I think discovery, certain behavior, the stockpiling mentality that we're seeing and the whole way consumers are purchasing at the moment, that's all changing, which is adding another layer of challenge to these CPG brands. I'm really glad that we're going to dive a little bit into um, the changing retail at, landscape at the moment. We'll, we'll get into that in, a bit later in our discussion. But whether a big corp or an emerging startup, we want to see all businesses of all sizes come out on the other side in good standing. And now... Well, I think this is not really an easy concept for businesses to get their heads around given global recessions and reduced economic activity across the world. Brands are actually being advised to invest in various strategies that will secure their business sustainability. So, Jim, help us make sense of that a little bit. Where do those investments need to be made? Is it brand awareness at supply chain level? Is it consumer awareness? Is it investing in reformed business models? Just help us sort of understand that mentality that's that's sort of being advised to some of the CPG brands at the moment. That was um, a great question, and you framed it in such a way that I uh, can I pick all of the above. Yeah, you hit you hit all of the salient areas that I think brands need to be very cognizant of today. Um, you you in your first question you. Uh, kind of outlined um, big CPG, and I kind of touched on it a little bit, all the way down to pre-revenue companies. They were all affected. And, and let me talk for a minute about uh, big companies versus little companies. As you well know, big companies are um, probably better uh, to withstand the long-term and even short-term um, disenfranchisement of an issue like COVID and how it affects their company. They have the ability to furlough employees and downsize. They have the ability because most of them have decent sized cash uh, troves uh, to withstand the storm as it relates to uh, financial longevity. Um, and the, the government has actually been out there um, helping all levels of business, um, you know, there, there's there's been um, SBA or Small Business Association or administration loans that have been um, authorized in the United States, uh, over 2.3 trillion dollars worth of them, um, 
And uh, quite frankly, there's still a lot of money left in that first tranche of capital that was allocated. Uh, it has not all been absorbed. Um, as with any government kind of program, there's been some fraud involved in it. There's been some uh, entities that probably should not have qualified to get these uh, what will be forgiven loans. Uh, but irrespective of that, that saved a lot of these uh, companies, large and small, uh, on a short term basis. They were able to keep a lot of their employees um, uh, at least uh, through the end of this month, which I think is when the first tranche, quote unquote, is supposed to run out. And our Congress is currently talking about the potential of reauthorizing another one before the end of the month to extend both unemployment benefits as well as the PPP and the SBA uh, loan ability. So um, I talked about big companies being able to respond and, and weather the storm on a long-term basis because of cash reserves. Um, their focus is clearly on their mainstay beverages. I think innovation at the large scale is almost non-existent now. It's making sure that the shelves at retail are full, that if they're doing online business and activities, that their supply chain is replenished and refurbished and uh, wherever chain links in the chain were broken, those are fixed and they have the ability to throw a lot of money and people and resources against those activities. Moving down the spectrum, though, from the whales to the minnows, um, the smaller companies do not have the wherewithal, usually with cash reserves, um, to withstand these kinds of storms. So as you probably have read, Charlie, and, and this has kind of been noted internationally in lots of publications, um, many restaurants, for instance, food service operators, uh, hotels, uh, anything in the entertainment space has been decimated in the United States. Airline industry was down 80% uh, and probably more than that at certain times. And I suspect based on United Airlines just making the announcement that they're furloughing over 45,000 employees, um, that's half their workforce. So um, these kinds of things are going to happen and we have not seen the bottom of the trough yet. Again, that's a big company and they, they're getting some um, some help and assistance from the federal government because without airlines, there's no travel in the US. We don't have train service that runs like uh, like it does in Europe. Um, so uh, either uh, automobile or bus or uh, or airline is the only way uh, to be able to move around in the US. And so that that's a business that needs to continue to be shored up, but passengers at this point are still reticent to get on an airplane. Uh, in addition, if you start looking back at the food service end, um, hotels are empty in America. Very few people, business, uh, business people are traveling. The advent of Zoom and Skype, which has been around forever and WebEx and some of the other um, online activities that allow the connectivity both for personal and business use are on fire. And people are learning to deal with this crisis in ways that they never thought possible. I would not want to be an owner of, of a massive amount of commercial real estate today. It's another industry that I think is going to go through a tremendous contraction uh, over the last the next couple of years based on people downsizing their offices or completely getting rid of their offices and people working from home or telecommuting. So how does that affect what's happening with the purchase of, of brands, food and beverage items? Well, clearly at retail, 
I think a lot of people are not shopping as often as they were in the past. That therefore uh, backs up into what are consumers shopping for? And I would propose that most consumers are shopping for what we call staple list items. So it's it's the exterior ends uh, or, or the surroundings of the store, all fresh produce, fresh juices, milk, eggs, uh, bread, you know, those kinds of things. And then they're replenishing their, their shelves with canned goods and spaghetti and, you know, uh, paper products and uh, household cleaners and those kinds of things. But once you get all that stuff, you're done. So at the end of the day, that's why the supermarkets are not packed like they used to be. People are kind of working through this ebb and flow um, uh, orientation. People are eating a lot more at home, and that has spurned a multiple of new Klingon industries um, like Uber Eats and Grubhub and these delivery services that are allowing consumers to still patronize their local businesses, uh, restaurants, uh, of all kinds, top end to, uh, you know, the McDonald's or fast foods, uh, QSR type uh, at the lower end, if you will, um, so that people can still get some variety in their uh, daily activities, which I think is so important to stem off the depression and uh, lack of creativity and, and spurring um, uh, innovation that's, uh, that's going on right now because people are stuck at home. So at the end of the day, um, you know, because my practice focuses mostly on small business, um, they're they're devastated. We're going to see a tremendous amount of companies that did not survive uh, this this uh, COVID crisis. Uh, those that did are going to be um, crippled in certain uh, uh, instances. They've had to reformulate their strategic plans. Many of them that counted on their retail presence and because buyers are not buying and stores are not looking for new products, they're just refurbishing and refilling the store shelves. A lot of these companies that were expecting big boons in, in revenue by the sale of their product are eating inventory. They're sitting on inventory, which is a cash expense. They have nowhere to sell it. So they're looking for um, new avenues. And so it's it's it has spurred some innovation and creativity from that perspective. And I believe, Charlie, that the the ones that can work best in this kind of environment are small companies because their flexibility quotient and their ability to uh, kind of turn on a dime um, uh, is much, much better uh, and much more indicative on the small uh, on the, on the smaller level than it is on a on a large corporate level. I'll give you an example metaphorically. If you think about an aircraft carrier, which is 1,800, 2,000 feet long, it takes them 26 miles to turn 10 degrees. Whereas if you're in a small boat, a 30-foot uh, outboard or inboard motor, and you crank that wheel right or left, it takes you 26 feet to turn 10 degrees. So that if you kind of superimpose that on large versus small business, you can kind of see the ability that they have to shuck and jive a little bit uh, based on conditions that are beyond their control. And so you are seeing some companies that have given up at retail or they're not focused too much on retail and they're moving to Amazon, mostly because in the U.S. particularly, the Amazon systems um, really did not fail during this process. There are 30 some odd warehouses around the country. They were putting purchase orders out for restocking immediately once the country shut down. 
Uh, and they have actually been delivering packages. Some of them have been slowed down a bit, and sometimes you order it instead of getting it the same day or the next day or two days at the outset. It takes a week or 10 days to get what you order, but you get it nonetheless. They've been able to cut the suit to fit the pattern. Uh, most of their drivers do not interface with customers, so everything they're doing is internal at the, at the uh, 3PL warehouses. And uh, and so it, it, it Amazon was able to enable itself to function beautifully during this uh, during this COVID crisis. So I think they've been a beneficiary of lots of business that they had not anticipated. Uh, and all of the Klingon industries that support Amazon have benefited, including the smaller to midsize brands that pivoted from their normal retail delivery structure and the waiting for buyers to approve their products to Amazon, which is a much quicker approval process and they can get into business uh, much quicker. So I, I think that's one area where there's been a big uh, boon. Um, uh, short of that, it's, it's, it's kind of hard to find uh, uh, you know, stars or pearls in, in the oysters today. People are just getting by. Jim, it's sad to hear. I think, you know, the reality is that some businesses haven't been as quick on their feet. You know, they haven't pivoted to to the model that is needed to survive in today's climate. And I think, again, the reality is that we will inevitably see some businesses go under, whether those are companies that are smaller and starting out and even some of the bigger, more established companies, you know, some of them are in trouble. And I think... Businesses are obviously doing everything they can to to cost cut and reduce non-essential spending, and and the scale of these changes reflects you know, through the business's size. I guess, I think we're especially seeing these changes in in employee structure and retail stock that you mentioned to protect business survival. And as you mentioned, some of the smaller companies don't really have the financial infrastructure in place to protect themselves quite as well. And these reductions in workforce and resources, are, I mean, those are happening globally. And you you highlighted the entertainment and the aviation industries in particular, we know they're taking some seriously hard hits. But looking at um, nutrition businesses and companies here, is there a smarter way to look at cost cutting and, and put strategies in place to support long-term survival? You know, could, could all these strategies to minimize costs and efforts actually put businesses at greater risk um, in the long term? Um, I'd love to just hear your thoughts on if there's a way to reassess maybe internal structures and, and business models that will generate external success in the long term. You said, um, and I think I agree with you a lot here, that the smaller companies are more flexible, they're more agile. Um, you know, what can we learn from them about implementing sustainable business solutions? Charlie, that's a, a really good question, and I've done a lot of thinking about it. I, I'm not sure that I've arrived at a crystal clear um, you know, cement style uh, answer, but I will share with you this. Um, I do believe that the nutrition industry in general has been a major beneficiary of, of the COVID crisis, just as you're seeing hundreds of companies, or at least 100 companies in an article I read yesterday, um, are vying uh, to develop uh, a vaccine for this virus. Never in the history of our country uh, in America or anywhere else, have a hundred companies been vying to develop a vaccine? That that's just bizarre. So the fact that that there is this competitive landscape 
uh, in the vaccine world just shows the energy and the pivot by all of these pharma companies and nutrition companies, by the way. I'm sure there's dietary supplement manufacturers and others that are working on trying to get a vaccine uh, uh, produced as well. Um, it still has to go through FDA uh, approval and, and all of that and, and some kind of either preclinical or clinical trials to protect outcomes and to make sure that whatever vaccine is created, that it is safe to consume uh, or, or, or receive an injection uh, from. So at the end of the day, uh, as we are operating in the uh, in ingredient space and, and most of the focus uh, around Supply Side West and Natural Products Expo and the NBJ Summit and Vita Foods and, and other uh, things that you're working through and on uh, from the Informa perspective, um, we're at the right end of this spectrum because we have companies that have developed um, lots of information and data around these ingredients that are either uh, naturally occurring on the globe or synthetically developed. Um, uh, there's a lot of consternation around GMO and, and that orientation. I would imagine that there's probably a rev up in that world right now, uh, the genetic modified organisms and, and, and uh, you know, predetermined growth other than relying on nature. Um, uh, just because, uh, you know, food supplies have been affected dramatically. There's a lot of farmers that were unable to get into their fields to harvest crops. Therefore, we lost crops. Um, you know, everything rolls downhill. So when one major thing puts a complete halt to the market, it affects a lot of things. And people just don't think about it. Uh, people are used to buying things at the grocery store. They're prepackaged, they're convenient, they're ready to go. And a lot of consumers, it doesn't matter where they're from around the world, they don't think about how, how all those products got there. <laughs> so uh, when you think about um, the immunity space, which you talked about at the top end of the uh, podcast, um, I think the immunity space is one that is a shining star, and there are many ingredients that are focused on immune health that have been out there a long time, but they're being tapped big time. Uh, I, I think the use of just multiple vitamins has increased dramatically in the United States, uh, and there's a lot of data out there to probably support that. But all sorts of other immune antioxidant ingredients um, are coming to the fore and consumers are reading a lot. They're talking to each other. They're getting a lot of information, good, bad, or indifferent through social media, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram, Pinterest. Um, you know, it doesn't really matter. Or the blogging universe out there, uh, which is another way to be able to get lots of information. Um, again, it, it needs to be tested and verified because there's a lot of unscrupulous people out there on the web that would just as soon uh, you know, uh, drive you off a cliff as to help you. Uh, it's unfortunate, but that's the way of the world. So you, you need to make sure that you have checks and balances against anything you do because our bodies are temples and anything that you put in it will have an effect at some point in time. So we need to be very careful um, about food supply and about um, what you're actually ingesting and, you know, uh, getting doctor's approvals and talking to your physician, and hopefully everyone has one now, uh, uh, is, is an important thing, uh, particularly as you get older. And I'm pushing the upper end of the spectrum on the age side. Um, and so I, I'm really paying attention to what goes in my body and how my body is reacting uh, almost on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm -hmm. So 
um, immunity without our health and without the immune system working correctly, which is the whole process of getting this this uh, vaccine done, uh, we're, we're basically trying to kill this COVID virus. Um, our bodies, uh, some of them need assistance. Uh, it appears that younger people are doing a better job of fighting it with less, um, you know, invasive uh, uh, outcomes and, and they're, they come out the other side and they're feeling fine. Um, we, we learned a lot through this process about the immune system of compromised or comorbid uh, individuals who have heart disease or diabetes or they're overweight or they have some other comorbidity that uh, that uh, the virus uh, can work through and get into their bodies and it makes it much more difficult to fight the disease. Um, these are all good learnings and I guarantee if another one of these comes along in 20 years, we're going to have a much better way of fighting it and we're going to know how to do it a lot better. Uh, lessons learned uh, during this process and it's very unfortunate that so many people had to pass away uh, needlessly uh, in some respects um, uh, because we just were not prepared but it is what it is and we we now have to learn from this and we and, and we need to put better um, processes in place and I think that will happen in corporate America I think it will happen with small business the, the thing that breaks my heart Charlie is a lot of these small restaurants in cities all over the country. I'm talking about from New York to, to Los Angeles in the US and Toronto to Vancouver in, in Canada and all through Mexico. They're just dying on the vines. Uh, and I, I don't want to get into any political issues about the unrest that's going on in the United States because of our, our political processes uh, at this stage and and uh, what what the the riots and and uh, protests are doing to the unintended consequences, if you will, of of all of this, uh, adding to the to the COVID crisis and the fact that this has crippled and taken life savings of so many people, um, and and you know put them out to pasture, e even with the help of the government. Many of these companies are going to either decide not to rebuild or open again, or um, they, they gave it their college try, if you will, and they were unsuccessful and they're gone. We're talking about 25 to 45 percent of these businesses that where you will see for lease and for sale signs in front of uh, commercial uh, buildings all over the country. And that's just a travesty. Uh, you know, having to rebuild all that again, or maybe never rebuild it. I, I don't know what the answer to that is. And that's why I say it's a lot of these things are up in the air. But the good news is we, we, we as an industry, the nutrition space is becoming an unintended uh, beneficiary, in my view, of uh, the fact that we are uh, selling and manufacturing and packaging uh, and making convenient um, good for you, better for you, healthier uh, ingredients that can help during a process uh, that was uh, put upon us for no fault of our own through the COVID virus. Uh, uh, Jim, going back to your sort of first statement, I think it's, it is very much anyone's game right now, right? Like nutrition and healthcare companies are at the forefront of finding a solution in whatever capacity that might be. Right. And as you highlighted, I think, you know, immunity is certainly one in the spotlight, as well as a range of other foods, beverages and supplements that, that support overall health and well-being. And, you know, regrettably, as you, as you mentioned, we're experiencing a really huge learning lesson at the moment that could put us in a more educated standing, I suppose, if we have to witness a pan pandemic like this again. And, uh, you know, I don't know, in 10, 20 years time, if this ever had to happen. 
you know, not only will we as consumers be more mindful of our health and our individual needs, you know, as you referenced, certain people are at more risk than others, but I think businesses should have crisis strategies in place as well to help them pivot quickly and make essential decisions to protect business survival. So, Jim, what I want to talk about now, and we touched on this earlier, is um, this evolution in direct-to-consumer strategies. You know, as we know, and the nature of lockdown has meant that a lot of us are are discovering products through online channels, and the brands that have ma- managed to pivot really quickly have have done well for themselves. But you know, what is the future of retail? How many? I think online shopping in general was a trend that we were all, already seeing. But you know, could this be something that has just been accelerated through COVID? Will we ever see people go back into stores in the way that we've known it to? You know, what is the sort of the future of consumer behavior and the way that they purchase things from now on? Well, again, Charlie, your guess is as good as mine, but I mean, (laughs) just, just so far as you've seen consumers, and I'm sure it's the same in London or South Africa, where you came back from recently, right? Uh, you know, it, it's consumers are amazing in terms of their resilience and the human spirit, uh, because we're emotional characters, um, we aren't, are, it's, we're irrepressible. So, I mean, in many ways, um, we find if there's a brick wall put in front of us, we'll figure out how to climb over it or dig under it or go around it or, or in some instances, bust right through it. And I think there will be a certain number of consumers that clearly come back to the retail landscape. Um, grocery stores have actually been closing in America for some time, but they've been doing it fairly judiciously and slowly. Um, they've been getting out of leases. They've been closing small and antiqu- uh, antiquated stores in lieu of remodeling and growing larger ones. Uh, you've seen the footprint of Kroger and um, and Walmart, Walmart here and Asda in, in the UK grow the size of their footprints, um, making these super centers. Target has gone down the same uh, routing, less stores, bigger stores, more inclusive from food and non-food all in the same location. I think you're going to see a lot more of that quote unquote consolidation going forward. Um, what I, I think will probably be changed forever are the days of going into Neiman Marcus and Macy's and uh, Lord and Taylor and um, uh, and those kinds of places uh, uh, tr- putting makeup on your face or even trying on clothes, um, you know, where a, a lot of people that are buying clothes today online, uh, the ability to try them on, if they don't fit, you send them back, you order something else. The, it's, it's an incredibly easy process once you get used to doing it. So I think consumers are probably in some number are going to just turn away from the traditional shopping environments that we've seen in the past. And that goes back to my earlier comment about the fact that I think you're going to see a change in the commercial landscape um, uh, around the world. You'll see fewer stores being built. Um, You're you're, going to see larger stores being built where where people will be able to come in and uh, you know when you've got more square footage you can also get more people into the same landscape right and because the six foot of separation or three feet or who's ever uh, rules you're following um, could very well be uh, a method of action going forward for a long period of time uh, the wearing of masks etc is something that could be one of those um, long-term uh, solutions and long-term habits 
that people get used to. I know you've been you've spent a lot of time in Asia. I've spent a lot of time in Asia. When you go to Hong Kong or China uh, or Thailand or certain places on the Asian Peninsula, people wear masks as a as a, a, a daily routine. Uh, just trying to stay safe, trying to not inhale the toxic fumes that are in the environment. You've seen Beijing um, uh, on days when it was so thick you could cut it with a knife, the air pollution. So, uh, you know, these kinds of things, I think, come and go. And, and I think uh, consumers, to answer your question, will be resilient and flexible in terms, they ha in terms of how they deal with these um, the, these interruptions in their, their daily life. But you've read the same articles that I have. I don't know if there is such a thing as return to normal. I think there will be certain things in life that will return to normal. We're clearly not going to be homebodies. It's not the way humans are built. We need interaction. We need hugs. We need kisses. We need love and affection. We need interaction. We need eyeball contact. And we need stimulation. And so all of those things have to be re-energized and, and we've got to rebuild our immune systems. We can't just stay home and pop pills um, on the other side of the spectrum and expect that our immune systems are going to be perfect when we go back out into the into public uh, areas again. Um, it, it's, it's just, it's probably not going to happen. We'll probably end up with a lot of sickness and a lot of, of flus and things like that when we all get back into the environment of, of rubbing shoulders again, uh, hopefully filling stadiums. Uh, you know, Wembley will be full again someday. Um, but, but at the end of the day right now, um, you know, playing football in America, playing baseball with no audience in the stands is a very empty, bizarre way of looking at things. And so that's what I mean when I say the new, the new or going back to normal is, is just going to be very different. Looking at supply chain disruption that took place over the last 90 to 120 days, some of those supply chains will never be repaired. So, um, you know, figuring out new ways to do things and being responsive to consumers. Consumers are going to drive what happens in the market over the next couple of years, Charlie. What, what they're becoming used to and what they want um, is going to drive the market. And so from that perspective, I think watching consumer behavior, communicating with consumers, it's one of the best things that has happened with social media and the connectivity that big brands, medium brands, small brands, and companies alike can, can work with relative to their, uh, their consuming population. They get immediate feedback on what their consumers think. And that's a fairly, you know, last five years uh, worth of activity has proven that companies that respond to what their consumers are saying they like or don't like or what package size they like or what flavor they like of this, that, and the other thing, uh, companies are benefiting from that immediate information because years ago, as you know, you put an advertisement on television and you run it a million times and you spend a fortune, you hope to hell that some people saw it on the other end and it, and it got them uh, up off the couch to go purchase a product the next time they were in the supermarket those days are gone. So 
you know, you can geo-target people to the their own address to a store that's three blocks away or 10 blocks away or a mile away and get them to take a coupon that they can download and print on their computer and walk it into a store and receive a 25% discount or a, a one free with buy one, get one. Um, and and that's that's all new behavior. And, um, you know, the internet is, is offering all of that activity through, you know, online e-tailing, um, uh, and and so I don't want to be so bullish on the fact that everything is going to online. I'm suggesting that an omni-channel strategy is really important. It's just the allocation of resources and the money against an omni-channel platform is going to be very perverse and and disproportionate disproportionate for the foreseeable future. If you were spending a lot of your budget on food service and food service is dead. You got to move that money somewhere else or save it. One of the two. You got to put it where consumers are able to get your product. That that's the sum and substance of what I'm saying. Right. So now, Jim, we don't we don't obviously have all of the answers here. Everyone's kind of figuring it out on the go. And I think you know, staying as close to consumers as possible is exactly what you mentioned. What brands really need to do to adapt their strategies and. And we are very much looking eagerly at the consumer to see how much they're paying attention to investing in their healthcare. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of changes around the investments that they're making into their well-being. We'd like to think they, they're learning lessons about more sustainable living. And I think the next couple of years will dictate how how much we return back to normal life. And I'm using air quotes here because, as you mentioned, we are going to see that that physical interaction improve. Wow. And we will lose certain certain things. But now I'd just like to pick your brain on um, what. And again, appreciating that no one's got all the answers here. We're very much figuring it out on the go. Right. But what, what do you think the health and nutrition landscape could look like in the next sort of five to 10 years for supply chain and, and CPG businesses? You know, we've we've already highlighted the considerations here around online versus physical store models and retail. But I'm thinking here a little bit about, you know, commercial strategies for businesses. Will we see businesses investing more in omni-channel presence, especially those that have not really done that, have done that yet? You know, are they going to invest in staying visible to consumers and possibly in in improved data and analytics to understand their buyers more and, and know how to adapt their strategies accordingly? I think, Charlie, the, the large companies will be able to, to uh, focus and or refocus on an omnichannel structure. They again, they have the resources, the dollars, the people, and and all other resources, um, supply chain, R and D. They have all of that uh, at their discretion. The midsize and smaller companies, I believe, in the near term, are going to be focused more on survival, and focusing on where revenue is coming from uh, as we erupt from the COVID uh, shutdown. Uh, I don't think they have the ability, frankly, to push a ball up a hill or open up a lot of new markets without having some knowledge that the return on investment is going to be there. And it's it's only because cash is king and lots of companies uh, uh, need the cash in order to survive. But uh, because the balance sheets have been disrupted uh, so dramatically and there's so much cash sitting on the sidelines looking to invest, these companies are going to have to think about taking on debt or diffusing equity by taking on money from outside investors. Um, and, and if that happens, they may have more flexibility to be able to uh, drive consumer demand or focus consumer demand uh, in more of an omnichannel 
uh, orientation. Other than that, I think most of the small and medium-sized companies will be focused on traditional go-to-market strategies like retail, like online, um, like food service, um, uh, club business, uh, those kinds of things, uh, which are, are more known uh, commodity trading. In other words, they understand if they invest in something uh, that, that there's a pretty good chance of return if consumers will buy their product. They just have to get it to that location or those locations. So uh, I, I think the, the future for grocery is, is um, not determined right now. I mean, there has been, as you've seen, a lot of uh, both attrition. Uh, we, we've had certain entities that have gone out of business in the last year. Some natural food stores and chains have gone out of business. Um, and, and I think you're going to probably see more of that post-COVID. There's just entities that are holding on and they're they're doing their best to keep the ship afloat. But uh, I think there will be more casualties. When you see companies uh, in the clothing industry like Brooks Brothers, which is a 120-year-old company, go bankrupt. When you see Bed Bath & Beyond ferry 200 stores, um, you're, you're seeing this. It doesn't all come out in one day, but if you read the business um, uh, sections of newspapers that collect international data on a regular basis, you will see that it's a huge number of players that are being affected by this. And I do not see that that's going to slow down uh, in the near future. Uh, I think we're going to have to go through a cleansing. Uh, it, it's unfortunately the strong and the bright will survive in this process. So again, larger companies have the ability to withstand uh, greater disinfluence. Smaller companies, even though they're flexible, and if they make good decisions early, their management team has done a good job of slicing and dicing and preserving capital and being able to reallocate resources and direction and be flexible, they have the ability to withstand some of these things. But as I, I mentioned, I don't want to be repetitive, but you know, restaurants who are usually a destination, some are a happenstance if you live in a neighborhood of your, or you're traveling, uh, because travel is so limited now and people are not vacationing. They're not going to big cities. They're staying in suburban locations. They're they're doing things that they hadn't done before. They're camping and hiking and doing outdoors activities that don't require people to go to big locations to purchase product. So, uh, you know, I, I do think sales and revenues are going to be down for some period of time till we get through this process. But uh, again, overarching uh, benefits are going to come from companies that uh, were quick to come to the party and address the issues that were imposed upon them by COVID. I think the nutrition, health, and wellness space is going to continue to grow uh, uh, out of COVID. I think there's new ingredients coming to market, new co-branded and, and co-developed uh, ingredients that, that when put together in a single formula can add great benefit for consumer consumption. Um, those are going to benefit. And, and uh, there will be some new exploration, I'm sure, that will come out the back end of this where people are going, okay, what's new? What happened during COVID? What am I not aware of that may be out in the marketplace? That'll be fun uh, to, to see a lot of that. Uh, and that's what, if, if there's a, if there's kind of a bright star out of this, I think that could be the, the fun part for consumers to be able to kind of do exploration and, and, uh, find out what new innovation, um, uh, albeit maybe limited, uh, came out of, of COVID and what companies really are, are going to propel themselves um, 
And I could talk a little bit if you want me to about some of the areas that are continuing to grow even during COVID here in the U.S. Yeah, of course, Jim. So when you look at you look at um, uh, different vertical categories, kombucha, for an example, I'm not a big fan of kombucha myself, but I've watched the category and I've watched the um, the kind of splintering of the category, the the large brands that have that have ended up coming into the market selling, you know, mushroom based uh, uh, antioxidant uh, gut health. Um, and, and now you're seeing um, uh, brands that are coming out with fermented uh, a product with alcohol content in it. So they're they're opening up a whole new market. Um, the world of sparkling waters and seltzers. Uh, has grown dramatically. Marrying those with alcohol, as an example, is a big growth segment in the U.S. Uh, sports nutrition, whether in powder form or or ready to drink, is continuing to grow uh, in the U.S. Um, the e-gaming space is is growing dramatically, and it probably because a lot of e-gaming is done at home, um, and you can be you can still uh, be very aggressive and uh, and entertain and. Um, and be uh, competitive against others from your own computer componentry in your home or office or wherever you're you're playing the gaming uh, uh, process, um, and, uh, and and so that industry and allied products that are being spun or spawned, if you will, uh, out of the gaming space are growing. Um, brain health concoctions. Um, uh, energy drinks uh, more along the lines of of natural occurring energy versus um, energy that's created uh, traditional means uh, that cause jitters and crashes and things like that when you consume it. Uh, those areas are growing. Um, the orientation around uh, CBD, uh, it still is not approved uh, in the United States and there's a lot of, uh, if you will, cowboys and Indians um, in the marketplace that are all vying for a position and hopeful that when we come out the other side of COVID and the FDA gets around to uh, either approving or not approving CBD as a, as a, a product uh, that has health benefits, proven health benef benefits with some clinical trial to back it up, that's an area that I think has uh, upward mobility. Uh, and, and there are there are a multiple of others. The alcohol in home alcohol consumption in the United States during COVID is up 60 percent. So what that is telling you is that consumers are buying a ton of alcohol and they're consuming it at home because they're homebound. Um, the five o'clock somewhere orientation is out the window now. Uh, people are self-medicating which in some respects is a really good thing for the health and wellness space. Uh, but on the other end, consuming more alcohol, uh, although my friends in the alcohol business will not be thrilled with me saying this, is clearly not uh, a great thing. Uh, modulating alcohol consumption has always been something that's really important and drinking responsible is important. But you know, when you have nothing else to do, it's it's very easy to sit to to sit with your family or close friends that are in the neighborhood or whatever, and and uh, start uh, drinking a beer at three o'clock instead of five o'clock. And, pe right. and people, yeah, are do, and people are obviously doing it. Yeah. So again, you're cutting the soup to fit the pattern. I think it's a temporary issue, uh, but irrespective of that, um, uh, you know, it is good to see that there still are categories that are growing. Um, and and uh, there is still uh, a, a semblance of creativity that's going on in the market. Um, it, it's just not as robust as it would be without COVID. 
Jeb, I know you and I could just chat and chat all day on this topic. And especially <laughs> as you mentioned, you know, everyone's creative juices are flowing. It's been so interesting to see the innovation taking place and to share these perspectives on, on everything that's happening across the health and nutrition landscape. And I've so enjoyed hearing your insights into brand survival in light of the pandemic, which you know, it's it's nowhere near over. You know, the battle is not won in any way, shape or form. And despite the current feeling that things are returning to normal, just as we're seeing certain behaviors come back and, uh, you know, things opening up. But I certainly appreciate everything you've high- outlined around how big corps and smaller companies are absorbing today's hard hits, as well as, you know, your considerations around re-strategizing and, and staying alert to the very rapid changes at consumer level from, from purchasing to health attitudes. I think agility, smart investments, and a little bit of this survival of the fittest concept will really dictate who comes out on the other side. So it's been such a pleasure having you on the podcast, Jim, and learning from your years of experience and especially your your views in light of the ongoing pandemic. Um, I can't wait for the next time that we get to connect on this topic in, in the months coming up and, and reflect on, I think, a lot of more changes that are still to come. Look forward to it, Charlie. It's always a pleasure to chat with you and um, uh, love working with uh, Informa, and I hope that the listeners uh, out there will um, have some good solid takeaways and maybe some things they can ponder from our discussion and look forward to doing it again soon. Of course. Thanks, Jim. Cheers. Cheers.